Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. <laughs> You're not going to say your name? No. All right, well, that's Mika. <laughs> this is a music history podcast where I attempt to teach music history to my wife. Yep. She doesn't want to talk today. <laughs> We've had a week off. You should be ready. I have nothing to say. <laughs> I've literally nothing to say. Okay. Well, that's great for you because we're entering into where you are the host now. It's everyone's favorite segment. Mika is the host now. So much responsibility. (laughs) Do you have a jingle this time? You normally have a jingle for this. Mika is the host now. Wow. Chilling. (laughs) I am inspired. <laughs> um, I'd like to plug cute husbands and community. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> insightful. Okay. Well, then, sorry. Well, I guess we'll make us no longer the host now. Why Moving are you on. sorry? I am not to you. To our oh, loyal yeah. listeners, that was that was my bad. Yeah, well, it was kind of both of our bad. That was my bad. <laughs> Life um, just got in the way, and we're not professionals. I so. decided to go to real work. <laughs> I well, the days we had it off, we just didn't do it, and we were just it tired was too and early just didn't. In the week. I didn't even work. No, it was like Friday. Oh, when it, or like it was like Tuesday. That's true. It You're was t- like Tuesday, yep. and we, so we could have done it Tuesday night, and then edited Wednesday and had it up, but. We were tired, whatever. Life got in the way. It happens. We're not professionals. This isn't our job. So, sorry, but probably will happen again. So, it's okay. You sounded so, like, not sorry. I'm not that sorry. And <laughs> it sucks. I want to put up an episode every week. But, I mean, when we first started this, we said it was going to be every other week. So, so far, we have... Missed one week. Yeah, we have ruined the curve. <laughs> That's really sad, actually. <laughs> yeah. I like things to be perfect. Yep. Well, we missed... One week before, before that. that, but that was on purpose. Oh, yes. It was the blackout week. But yeah, so sorry about that. But if you were following us on social media, you would have already known that we had missed a week. Uh, so follow us there on Twitter, twitter.com. So you can be disappointed. Yes, before everyone else is disappointed. Twitter.com slash history underscore and facebook.com slash history. There you will be kept up to date. With both what we're doing, and we also like to retweet a lot of other cool shows and what they're doing. So go follow us there. I like to post pictures of cats. And (laughs) by that, I mean I like to tell Nick to post (laughs) pictures of our cats. That's true. Anyway, we're going to get into the actual music history now, five minutes deep. So, we're finally done with jazz. After months of talking about jazz, we are stepping away from it and looking at something else. Is it boring? It's a completely different style of music and one that I don't think you listen to ever. Is it country? No. It's like precursor to country. It's folk. I listen to folk way more than I listen to other genres. Probably not this folk. Probably not, but like (laughs) indie folk. Yeah. But kind of like with all music, all of the time. It does intersect with jazz a little bit, since they're kind of happening at the same time. Jazz is all of the musics. 
some crooners actually occasionally sang some folk songs and vice versa. Folk songs would like, or folk singers would cover jazz standards sometimes. Yeah, because it's called covers. So what do you think of when I say folk music? Like Banjos. Okay. Is that it? Yes. <laughs> Are you thinking like country music? Are you thinking like bluegrass? Um, I'm actually thinking of the Oh Hellos. Okay. They have banjos and instruments. They do my favorite. Well, that's not true. They do one of my favorite Christmas albums. Oh, cool. But I also like the other stuff. And cool. one of their songs played on one of the ads for like a river voyage at MTSU. Well, folk music is more related to blues and country than it is to like jazz or big band. But they all kind of have the same origins. They grew organically out of their communities and their cultures. I mean, granted, wildly different communities and cultures, but they all just kind of grew up out of that. But when there was no radio, oh, sorry. Back when there was no radio and no recordings, communities, especially the more rural areas, developed their own musical cultures and identities. Like, they didn't have anything else to draw on. It just kind of like, my daddy sang this song, and now I sing this song, and now my son sings this song kind of thing. A lot of folk music is really old. So old that it may be classified as oral traditions instead of songs. Why? Because it's just because it's telling stories using the spoken word. So it's more of like, I don't like. Do they sing? They got turned into songs, but they were oh. more like poems. Like like slam poetry. Like what is that? And bongos. <laughs> sort of, sure. <laughs> what is that really famous? Beowulf. Like okay. that was a poem that told the story of Beowulf. So it was kind of like that, except eventually they turned into songs. Folk music was often very sad, but full of hope, kind of like the blues. I don't think of sad when I think of blues, or not blues. Blues, I do think <laughs> of sad. Third time's a charm. <laughs> just, just screw it, whatever. <laughs> Leave it all in. But what do you, th so do you think of more like? I think of upbeat. All right, that's fair. I think it's more just like folk. We'll, we'll talk about this in a second. But folk was kind of like tied to protest songs and like the working class man's reprieve. So they're going to be talking about their lives and their lives often weren't great. So they're kind of full of sad themes. Folk, as like a broad term, was used to classify the music of rural, mostly southern communities of European descent. I feel like this is country music. It's definitely the origins of country music. You're like, their lives weren't great, and they sing about it. And if that's not country, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about, next week, we're going to talk about, like, one of the biggest folk bands of the time. And they were, like, the fathers and mothers of country music. So country music kind of was birthed out of this but as time progressed, because it was built from, or it grew out of communities, mostly southern communities of European descent. Did anything good come from the north? Um, Broadway. Oh, I like that. Okay, never mind. 
As time progressed, the term folk also got applied to blues, so this kind of music was sort of reclassified as American roots music. So when you hear, like, roots music, that's the same as this traditional folk we're talking about. I would, I would, have, I would have paired those together, yes. Folk music really didn't start getting super popular until, like, the 60s, where there was, like, a folk revival. Uh, it started to grow in popularity during the harsh times of the Great Depression and World War I era. That's when it, like, first got its grip into American ears. Wasn't that before the 60s? Wasn't that, like, Yeah, 30s no, I'm saying, 40s? like, it got super popular in the and 60s. And then it had a revival in the 60s. Yes, the 60s was a revival, was the revival, but, like, the first time it got a little bit of popularity was during the Great Depression and World War One. This period of great upheaval and distress across America really added something to the music. It broadened and expanded it, and it gave it some teeth for the nation instead of just the communities it was born out of. So, like, the rest of the nation could hear these songs and be like, yeah, I understand. I get where you're coming from. Like, this kind of sucks right now. I get it. That's a weird phrase. What? It some teeth. Yeah, it gave it, <laughs> it, gave it some power. A lot of this music would be focused around songs from their ancestors, English, Irish, and other European ballad ballads and like little ditties that their parents would sing. Cool. It was considered roots music because it formed the basis of what would become other prominent music like jazz, rock and roll, R&B, country, etc. It was also, although based on European ancestry, distinctly American. It spoke to the American condition in an honest and real way. Didn't really sugarcoat anything. It what just is kind of the like American condition? Well. Why do we think we are special when we are not? <laughs> I think that might have been too broad. It might have been, it spoke to those communities condition, like old mining towns, like that kind of tradition. That's special. Or when we talk about like Western folk, which kind of turned into like the cowboy country. Like it kind of speaks to that prairie type, li like I don't know. Just okay. different kind of communities like told their stories and then it connected with America in this period of like great stress and upheaval. Okay. Kind I of see. Very it's kind of the patriotic. opposite of think because you think of like jazz and the Roaring Twenties, how those go hand in hand, where mm -hmm. jazz is like the soundtrack of all of this wild parties and fun and debauchery. And champagne and glitter. <laughs> yes. Folk is like the same for the opposite time. It's the same for the Great Depression where there's this little like anxiety and worry and stress and like folk was the soundtrack of that. Or at least this folk. Folk is very broad, so like I feel like everyone knows what I mean when I say it, but folk could mean a bunch of different things. So we'll play some examples, I think, and we'll hear what I'm talking about. Cool. Folk music incorporates a lot of things. Blues, which we've already talked about. Country and bluegrass, which we will talk about. I like in a few other regional okay. styles. You like it's bluegrass more than country? Yeah, it's way more interesting. Really? Yeah. Like the instrumentals. Okay, maybe that's where we disagree, because I'm not a huge fan of instrumentals. I'm a lyrics person. Bluegrass, I just get so bored with. I grew up around it, because Bristol's mm -hmm. very bluegrass, and mm -hmm. I just didn't care for it. We have the bluegrass festival that would happen. It was obnoxious. 
And I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, around Yeehaw. all the country. So, like, different folk styles had different names depending on where they came from and what they sounded like. Appalachian music, as you could guess, was music from the Appalachian region of the United States. That's where my family done come from. <laughs> it's also where I came from. <laughs> That's where my family done <laughs> came from. Except yep. for my dad, who's a proper northern gentleman. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> this Appalachian music was heavily based around the fiddle. Do you know what a fiddle is? Yes, I know what a fiddle is. Okay, well, what's the difference between a fiddle and a violin? How you play it. Okay. I'm right. Well, it's more just the kind of music it plays rather than... Like, you're playing it the same way, but you just play different styles of music with it. It was explained to me that the difference is that a violin has strings and a fiddle has strings. And that's the difference between the two. <laughs> that's what I always heard growing up. <laughs> <laughs> from Mr. Gibson? No, just from the world. Appalachian music was first recorded in the 1920s and would go on to heavily influence country music and bluegrass. There, was, there were several huge stars, most notably the Carter family, who influenced so many people and started the split of country music away from traditional folk music. I believe I have heard of them. Yeah, or that's who we're going to talk about next episode, the Carter family. It's a fun story. I'm excited to talk about that one. I like it. Is it a family that doesn't fall apart? Because that will be new... Well, we'll talk about it. Appalachian music came about from primarily Irish and Scottish ballads that immigrants brought over in the 17 and 1800s. These were songs that were deep-rooted in the culture and full of historical importance. They were cultural, so the American descendants started to develop their own culture and forgot the characters associated with these songs. They started to change the lyrics and the music to stuff that fit their own cultures. Cool. Here is a traditional Scottish song called Bonnie George Campbell that changed into an Appalachian folk song over time. I thought Bonnie was a lady. I don't think so. Lady George Campbell. I'm pretty sure Bonnie's a guy's name in this. Saddled and bridled, say gallant to see. Him come his good horse, but never come he. I would be impressed if you could understand a single line of this. Is that Jamie? I, I think that's Jamie. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be Bonnie George Campbell. That's supposed to be his horse. Baby's unborn. I looked up the lyrics the first time I listened to the song and I was like, That's I didn't get any of this. Definitely Jamie. <laughs> like from Outlander. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Watched red around. That's what that looks like. Good horse, but never 
I hate this. <laughs> oh, that's Bonnie George Campbell. That was very deep. <laughs> so that's that's like an example of where folk music came from. That's like horrible. <laughs> the Scottish ancestors would come to the Appalachian region and they would be playing Bonnie George Campbell. But then like as their kids grew up, they'd be like, we have no clue who the heck this Bonnie George Campbell's supposed to be. So they would change it to be like a character they actually knew and like make a new story based on the same kind of tune and the uh, same kind of structure. It's probably better. Pro- at least understandable. <laughs> Understandable does not mean better. That's true. That wasn't the part of that song <laughs> that was horrible. I thought this tune was all right. Just like a traditional little, like it's like you would hear it in the tavern back in the medieval times. Oh, that sounds like a bad, bad time. <laughs> I would need a lot more to drink. So at the same time that this kind of stuff was happening, this music started to take on the influence of other cultures that immigrated to the same area. I need to just, just, just... Hold on. Okay. So we're talking about a cultural ballad that groups of people might sing when they are drinking at a pub? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Or just like whenever. It's like hanging out. Rocky Top. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Calling out Caleb. (laughs) (laughs) So at the time that this was happening, this music started to take on the influence of other cultures that immigrated to the same area, like Dutch, German, and most notably African influences. This hodgepodge of music kind of melted into a new style that was all its own. In the 1700s, so we're going back quite a ways. That's my rewind sound. The first <laughs> one was better. Uh, that one was good. Was it? <laughs> In the 1700s, African-American slaves brought the banjo to the region, and it would become one of the most important instruments in this kind of music. Thanks. Yeah. There are records of African-American banjo performers as early as 1798. We sure do owe them a heck of a lot. Yup. <laughs> New music started to crop up. Instead of just rewriting old stuff, they would start to create their own. And as the coal industry boomed in the region, protest songs started to become a thing. As the name implies, a protest song is associated with a movement for societal change. Where's our protest song right now? Oh, there's plenty. You just don't listen to rap music. Called out. (laughs) You're right. Uh Uh-huh. Like, Run the Jewels just released a pretty cool album. I'm really liking it, but Killer Mike, who is one of the people and run the jewels it's a hip-hop duo he's like a huge atlanta activist like he did a speech that got national attention and he's he's one of the run the jewels guy and i'm pretty sure they have some protest songs in there hell yeah that's awesome okay so as the name implies a protest song is associated with a movement for societal change which is not distinctly american We've had our fair share of good ones but almost every country and every culture has their own example of a protest song because, like, I mean, it makes sense. Music's a way to explain how you're feeling and to, like, band people together. So it makes sense that every society around the world would have issues they want to band people together against. Coal mining wasn't the best on the workers. There were a lot of labor issues back then. Back then? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better now, but That's true. back then it was horrible. 
So the workers started to write songs to talk about the hardships they were facing. Music is a very emotional thing, so when you're trying to get someone to empathize with your condition, it makes sense that you would like turn to music to tell your story. And this led to some really great protest songs, like Coal, C- Coal Creek March and Which Side Are You On? Do you want to hear Which Side Are You On? No, I want to hear Coal Creek March. Too bad I linked Which Side Are You On because I have a story about how it was written that's pretty <sighs> crazy. Why do you even ask? <laughs> Fine, you don't get to listen to it. Why you have a story? Well, this is a song first, and we'll tell the story behind it. From all of you good workers, good news to you. This song got really popular because a guy named Pete Seeger, who I'm sure you don't know, but he's a big rock vocalist did a cover of it in like the 60s my daddy was a miner and i'm a miner's son and i'll stick with the union till every battle's won which side are you on which side are you They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. I just rally you up to protest. Yeah, I'm ready. Honest. <laughs> Which side are you on? Their side, dude. <laughs> Listen to those harmonies. Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me how you can. I'm on the side will you justice. be a lousy scab or will you I think you you're on the union side. Batman. What? That's yes, the, yes. That's the person who wrote this. They were a union man. The woman. Don't scab like for the bosses. Yes, I blame her. Okay, but I'm sure you would also be on the Civil War Union I side. I would also be on the Civil War Union side. I just don't know if there's another I don't know. They literally picked up their pitchforks. Alright, that was a very popular protest song called Which Side Are You On? Okay, so do you want to hear the story behind Which Side Are You On? I really hope I wrote it down. Which okay, I did. Are you on? <laughs> so what in 1931, the miners of Harlan County, Kentucky were locked in a bitter struggle, which was known as the Harlan County War, with the mine owners. Sam Reese was the union leader of the miners. So in order to intimidate him, the mining company hired the sheriff and his men to illegally go into his house and find him and scare him. I don't know what they were planning to do when they found him. Probably wasn't good. But he had enough warning, and he managed to escape before they got there. But his wife and kids were still there. I'm thinking either he thought, like, they're coming for me, they don't, they won't, like, mess with my wife and kids, or maybe he wasn't home and someone caught him on the way, I don't know. But whatever, they were still there, so they got, like, terrorized. I don't know what happened, it just said they got terrorized. After the sheriff's men left, Reese's wife, Florence, wrote the lyrics to Which Side Are You On on a calendar that was hanging in the kitchen, and she wrote it to the tune of an old Baptist hymn. Dang. 
Yeah. Do you want to hear Florence singing the song when she was older? Yes. <laughs> this is the lady who originally wrote it, Why Florence Reese. start with that? Which side are you on? We're starting our good battle. We know we're sure to win because we've got the gun. Thugs are looking very thin. Which side are you yeah, on? That's Florence Reese singing. Which side Which are you side on? Are when she was a lot older. It's a pretty crazy story about how a protest song got birthed. So due to mail-order catalogs, other instruments started to enter the region and gain popularity, like the guitar, mandolin, and auto harp. Around the turn of the 1900s, people realized they needed to record some of these songs that were popular in the region. It was mostly an oral tradition, with songs passed down in families and communities. The people started to understand the rich musical heritage of the area and set about to record it. So people began field work to copy down the songs of the area. And that's how we know a lot of this older stuff. They did what? Field work? Field work, yeah. Like, for example, in 1916, Lorraine Wyman, who was a soprano singer, took her pianist to Kentucky and Tennessee to learn some traditional folk songs from the people. Mm. She took a lot of that music back to places like New York and Chicago, where she would perform it and see a lot of success. So that's what field work was. It was like people going into the field, which was like these rural communities and learning their songs directly from them. Okay. A few years after all of this field work brought folk songs to to national attention, recording started to become popular. Recording had been around for a little bit, but it wasn't great or easy to do. In the 20s, that started to change, and people saw the power these songs could have. So we've already kind of talked about recording and all that, so I won't get back into that. In 1923, OK Records sent a guy named Ralph Peer, who was a talent scout, to do the first recording sessions of this music in Atlanta. He recorded a fiddler who had won a few talent shows in North Georgia, known as Fiddlin' John Carson. (laughs) Carson was a railroad worker from Marriott, Georgia, who took an interest in music in the late 1880s. He honed his skill by playing for political rallies, parties, and fiddler's conventions. Fiddler's conventions. (laughs) Yeah. I want to go to that. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I take <laughs> back. No. He had his first taste of success in 1913 during the trial of Leo Frank, who was convicted of murdering a 13-year-old Mary Fagan. Did he do it? I mean, probably. He was convicted yeah, of it. Sounds it. like probably. So, Fiddlin' John Carson wrote a song called Leary M- Little Mary Fagan, which portrayed Frank really badly, which Good. like understandably play it to crowds and like people who worked for him would go through those crowds selling the sheet music to it. it That's would, awesome. It became really popular and was sung for years afterwards. In 1922, Fiddlin' John Carson was a house painter in the Atlanta area. Radio was just becoming a thing and Carson asked a local station if he could play something on air. A broadcaster granted his request in exchange for some whiskey. <laughs> After that, he continued near-weekly performances and was called the most popular player on the station. That's awesome. So in 1923, a local furniture dealer, who also worked as a scout for OK Records, convinced OK to send Ralph Peer to Atlanta to record Fiddlin' John Carson. I like how it's called OK Records. <laughs> like This is like one of the first record companies. <laughs> it's just OK. They're like, 
You know, this whole technology, it's not great. <laughs> so we're going to call it OK Records. <laughs> it is spelled O-K-E-H. Like, I don't know where the name comes from, but it's not spelled like OK. What if that's just how they spelled OK? Fair. OK. <laughs> OK. So anyway, Ralph Peer went to record in Atlanta. But apparently he thought Fiddlin' John Carson sounded awful and didn't think it would go anywhere. <laughs> but the 500 pressings they made quickly sold out. So they did 1,000 more for a national run, and that also sold out. So he's better than... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a song called Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane, which is one of the songs that Carson recorded during this session. Sounds a lot less um, politically charged. That's probably not politically charged. You okay? Mm-hmm. You in pain? Mm-hmm. Just tired? I'm sorry. Now I'm getting old and feeble and, and I cannot work no more. I think that based on the way they have the logo with a big O, a big K, and then small E and H, it looks like, okay, (laughs) okay, eh? They were going to be one of the record companies I talked about in my episode that I scrapped because it was too boring. That's the big one, John Carson saying. Sounds very country, right? Alright, Phil and John Carson. One of the forefathers of American country music. Carson would record another 150 songs between then in 1923 and 1934. That's a lot. Yep. He is sometimes known as the first country music performer. We've dipped a bit into the history of country music with this one, which is okay. It's hard to know where one stops and the other starts. But we might recap this when we talk about country music soon. Like in a few episodes, we're going to talk about the birth of country music. In 1927, Ralph Peer set up shop in Bristol, Tennessee. (laughs) To record musicians there for the Victor Talking Machine Company. So he left OK and he was now working at Victor. That's a better name. There he recorded the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. That sounds like better people. <laughs> These sessions are widely regarded as the start of commercial country music. I don't know and if it's better people. The other guy was fine. And <laughs> that these sessions are why Bristol is known as the birthplace of country music. That's pretty cool. But I'm sure we'll talk more about that when we cover country music, which we will because I wrote the episode now and we do Whoa. talk more about that. Cool. Did you, like, throw in fun little hometown facts? No, because I didn't do anything about country music when (laughs) I lived in Bristol. I drove past the museum quite a bit, but I've never been there. There's a birthplace of country music museum. But I have been, like, because the actual place where he did these recordings was in a warehouse on State Street. Mm. So I've been on State Street a bunch. I've just not been in the warehouse. But I'm sure it's not there anymore. I mean, the building is, but oh, it's it is? something different. Like, I don't think they did anything to commemorate it's it. It's probably a church. <laughs> no, State Street is full of, like, shops and stuff. It's a cool little area. I don't know if you've been there. We haven't ever walked down, actually. I want to no. do that next time we go. There's, there's a nice bakery there. You've told me about that bakery so many times. <laughs> I'd love to do that. And it's also just cool that one side of the street's Tennessee and the other's Virginia. We just hop the border. 
I don't actually prescribe to like the borders. state borders. <laughs> <laughs> what is a what is a territory? Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna brush past that. <laughs> so up Just till now, abolish everything. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So up till now, we've primarily been talking about Appalachian music, but that wasn't the only type of folk music being performed in the early 1900s. There was also Cajun music that was rooted in the ballads of the French-speaking Canadians who immigrated to Louisiana. Cool. It was really influential in jazz and country music. Here's a traditional Cajun song from the Balfa Brothers. I am excited. I don't know anything about the Balfa Brothers, but this was just a song I could find. This is not calming. <laughs> is it supposed to be calming? It's supposed to rile you up to protest. I think it's about Mardi Gras. Is Mardi Gras ever a protest? No, this isn't a protest song. I didn't think so. I think this is in French, too. I don't think this is. Well, right now it's in instruments. This is awesome, actually, once they <laughs> start singing. I'm going to guess this is the dance of Mardi Gras. How did you <laughs> ever come to that conclusion? Considering Can dance is the French? same word, just with one letter different. Can you speak French? I apparently. I'm a genius. I just know everything. Okay, that checks out. Right, well, that's the Balfa Brothers. I hated it, and then I liked it. And you then hated I hated it. Oh, it was a nice little tune. It was jarring. And then they started singing, and I was like, oh, that <laughs> they're pleasant. So also during this time, Plains music started to become popular. Plains in the sky? <laughs> no, Plains like wide open areas. <laughs> this music came from the Oklahoma and Nebraska regions. It was based out of Native American music, which had been happening since before recorded history and was massively important in that culture during ceremonies and celebrations. Other Native American societies had their own types of music, and of course, it varied widely from different communities. But that type of music was what led to Plains folk music. During the reservation period, these communities would gather and create slash play songs to combat the despair and boredom they were feeling. The drum became a massively important instrument during these meetings. Why do they have despair and boredom? I mean, they're stuck on a reservation. They can't really do anything. This was in they reservation time? Yeah, I said that. Oh. They were, like, driven out of their homes and forced into these little oh. reservations way out west. I know I know about reservations. I just missed yeah. you saying that because I was asleep. <laughs> So all of this like Native American music was going on and mixing with the British immigrants who flocked to the region during the land rush of the late 1800s. They started to share their songs based on British ballads and sacred music. Then there was immigration up from Mexico, so their style of music also started to blend in. So we got just like a melting pot. We got Native American, we got British ballads and hymns, we got Mexican music. I like it. Like Appalachian music, the fiddle and mandolin were the most popular instruments because of how portable they were. I like mandolins. Yeah. Woody Guthrie came from Oklahoma and grew up in this musical community. In the Great Depression era and afterwards, he made the Oklahoma Plains style of folk song popular. 
His music seemed to give people a sense of community, belonging, and triumph after going through a really tough part of history. It felt simple and real. Do you Have you ever heard of Woody Guthrie? Sure have. Yep, well, here's Woody Guthrie. Cool. Singing, This Land is Your Land. Which everyone knows that song. This is one of the songs that my mom and I would sing at the beginning of this land is your like land. This is how you started your day. This land is your land. California. New York Island. I mean, I get the Pledge of Allegiance because like, we did that in school Gulf too when I was young. Waters. But singing this song. This is a class. Come on. As I went a walking that ribbon of highway, and I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was right, well you know that song. That's, <laughs> that's what he got three singing it. Folk music, or roots music, or whatever you want to call it, is incredibly important for American musical history which is why we're talking about it. It grew naturally out of the communities and people that played it. And a lot of the greatest musicians of the 1900s grew up with some sort of musical musical community, and folk music played a huge role in that. I like music from communities. Yeah. Hey, that my plug was community. That's true. All right, so that's, that's folk music. We're cool. going to talk about the Carter family, who were very instrumental in both country music, but also were the first, like, folk music superstars that's who we're talking about next week if we actually do an episode we will i mean we're going out of town so there's a chance we're we might going not out of town this week yeah but this episode is going to go up oh, thursday no, when we're out of town uh-huh. so we're gonna have to do another one before before thursday. the thursday after that which would be a little bit difficult but we can do it we can do it it'll be fine i'll probably be more awake what was the artist that you said was putting out a really cool album the hip-hop duo? Oh, Run the Jewels. They already put it out, though. Came out, like, last week, a couple weeks ago. Cool. Yeah. Just listen to it. It's interesting. I like it a lot. All right. Well, that's all we had. So join us next week when, when we talk about awake. the Carter family. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not let's not put that kind of promise on you. <laughs> You're <laughs> often asleep, so we can't vouch for the fact that you'll be awake. I'm narcoleptic. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. <laughs> hey, that is neither proven nor disproven, okay? I could be. <laughs> okay, well, she's asleep, so we are out of here. Bye, everybody. We will see you. Bye. Okay, why is this cutting in and out? I want to say goodbye. <laughs> okay. Goodbye, everybody. We will see you next week. My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son, and I'll stick with the union till every battle's won. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Oh, tell me, 
Will you be a lousy scab or will you be a man? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? 